yesterday played a first grade basketball game. Wiley, uh, Wiley's in basketball right now, and so is Lucy. So our Saturdays are pretty full with, with sporting events, as many of your lives are as well. And the reason I tell you this is yesterday was a little different for us because we go to a first grade basketball game. Mind you, we have played three basketball games already as a first grade team in the same league. We go to the game yesterday, and they changed all the rules. They changed the setup. We didn't play quarters. We played halves. You were supposed to get free passes and a free shot. Where you could play defense. All these things came down on yesterday morning right before we played what was, what was our fourth game of the year. And the reason I bring this up is because I was really frustrated. I was really upset. Not at the boys and not at the moment, but because what we expected to happen changed. Right? And you know this, you know this feeling, you know this experience is when you go into something with one expectation and it's not what you thought it was going to be or not what you thought or from experience what you were told it was going to be, you tend to get upset, frustrated. I don't think I'm alone in that kind of feeling or thought. And so yesterday morning was a, was a morning of great practice of patience and flexibility and, and, and learning on the fly, which got to me uh, thinking a little bit of, of this idea of how we want to know what we're walking into. You know, you can read all kinds of church statistics and church materials. If you want to talk about congregational life, most people will not come into your church building unless they know they can expect. Now, this is, this is true in anywhere you go, because you, you go into certain stores, you go into Walmart knowing what to expect, right? You go to certain places wanting and, and understanding a certain level of expectation, and when things are different, when service is not what you expect, when you walk into a building and it's not what you expected, we tend to be upset or frustrated at those kinds of moments. This is why we have job descriptions. i I was looking at my job description just a couple of days ago. I'm working on some uh, several different things with leadership, and I was, I was looking at this, and it reminded me of this very idea, though, that I've been in, I've been in uh, ministry, full-time ministry. This will be my 17th year in full-time ministry. And every ministry job that I've had has gone just like every job that you have ever had. You've applied and you had interviews and you have been given a job description. Why? So that everyone is on the same page about the expectations of you and the employer or church, right? Right? There's, there's expectations on me that the congregation should have on me as your minister. There's expectations that elders have on me as an employee, as, as one who works uh, in, in the umbrella of congregational life. And, and the job description provides the same level of communication and expectation, just like it's your work. And where does frustration come from in our lines of work? When the job descriptions change, right? When we start to mess with or maybe what we, our duties are, are beginning to change or shift, maybe slowly, maybe suddenly, but we grow a little frustrated at the unexpected changes from what we thought we were into or expecting. 
And I bring all of this up because as we get into this idea of Jesus' calling in the Gospel of Matthew, we have to understand that our expectations need to be thrown out the window completely. Because Jesus doesn't operate with job descriptions. He doesn't operate with uh, our expectations at the center of where we are going. And so Matthew chapter 4, as as an initial impression of what this looks like, this may be quite familiar for many of you. But this is the first time possible in Matthew that Jesus calls disciples to follow him. In Matthew 4, picking up in verse 18, Jesus is walking along the shore of Galilee. saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew. They were throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Now, verse 19 is where you really need to understand how this discipleship process really begins to work. Because Jesus isn't calling these disciples, in this case, Simon and Andrew, he doesn't call them into a job in you. He doesn't say, hey, Simon and Andrew, let's grab coffee. I have an idea. I have a, I have a thought. Maybe I want to run by you a position that might interest you. That's not what Jesus does here in verse 19. Jesus doesn't walk up to two men in the middle of their job and say, you know what? Have you ever thought about doing this and hand them a piece of paper? Verse 19, Jesus walks up to Simon and Andrew and says, Come, follow me. And I will show you how to fish for people, which is pretty ominous and appealing all at the same time, isn't it? Come, follow me, he says. That is the job. That is the expectation of discipleship. It's not overly complicated, but it is deeply meaningful and life-altering. Come, follow me. The remarkable aspect of this story, but there's two really, the fact that Jesus would call fishermen to be students of his, to be those who would take up the ministry to which Jesus is at the very beginnings of in Matthew chapter 4, that he would call rough guys like Simon and Andrew, But in verse 20, we learn that Simon and Andrew left their nets at once and followed him. That come follow me is the the calling in of itself. Follow me is the calling to which Jesus calls every disciple throughout all generations into this kingdom life that he has established. That the kingdom of heaven is near. And when the kingdom of heaven is near, disciples are called to follow. And I've seen this in my years of ministry, the struggle of calling. See this uh, most evident in teenagers, college students. I don't know what my calling is. I'm not sure what I'm being called into. Or I think my calling lies elsewhere. These are the kinds of sentences I hear all the time when people begin to struggle with perhaps opportunities or lack thereof. And when it comes to especially career and jobs. That these struggles are a way for us to begin to wrestle with or decipher what is best for me or us. We're trying to determine an outcome. 
But in Matthew chapter 4, I think one thing that really needs to be pointed out and we really constantly need to go back to is that come follow me is the fall is the calling of Jesus and there is no well expectation to what comes next. There's no job description that follows with the call. And so what we begin to do, if I can kind of simplify it, so to speak, is that we begin to build our own job description, right? It must not be a calling for Jesus because why would Jesus want me to move there or do that or be around those kind of people? And so we begin to, to, to build our own version of a discipleship calling when, in fact, and in reality, the calling of Jesus is quite simple. Follow me. We ought to wrestle with this calling. But we also need to take chapter 4, verse 20, and to understand that the expectation of disciples of Jesus Christ, the expectation of those who want to live in the kingdom of heaven, is to drop their nets immediately and follow now that phrase, follow me, I want to unpack it for a moment. Follow me, quite literally, what Jesus says, translated directly, is come behind me. Simon Andrew, come behind me. Travis, come behind me. And the reason I bring that up is because it is a it's a fascinating visual of what Jesus is asking of these disciples then and today. That these disciples aren't handed a job description. These disciples are handed theological life implications. Because following Christ is not us in front. It is not us building the job description, so to speak. It is us doing something quite simple and something quite direct. Getting behind Jesus. Getting behind the Messiah. Following in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. I'd go with my dad when I was, when I was a child. My dad was in, is still in air conditioning work, and I'd go with him on many Saturdays on service calls. Going to people's houses, trying to fix their air conditioners. And I go with him on many early Saturday mornings. And this idea comes to mind because on those Saturday mornings where I'd go as a child with my dad on these service calls, I was quite literally behind my dad through the, through the work. I'd hand him tools when he asked. But I was behind him learning or seeing what needed to be done or how it would be fixed. It wasn't me. No one asked me. My dad didn't ask me to do the, to do the, the hard work of fixing an air conditioner. He asked me to simply stand behind him, follow him, learn from him, pay attention from him. And this is the direction to which Jesus calls his disciples. Whether it's the first century or the 21st century, disciples come behind Jesus. They fall in line, not to themselves or to others or church leaders or anything else. They fall behind Jesus Christ. They fall behind the Messiah. Now, what happens in our following 
How we tend to be those who come behind Jesus says a lot, not simply about ourselves, but says a lot about what discipleship is, what it means to be a 21st century disciple of Jesus. Simon and Andrew understood it. Matthew understood it. We looked at that text last week, and we're going to read a little bit more out of Matthew 9 here in just a second. That following or coming behind Jesus comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. And we don't like to hear this, do we? Following in the footsteps of Jesus cost you something. And that's not a message we tend to hear, especially in 21st century America, Christianity. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Matthew, the author of the gospel of Matthew, tells the good news of Jesus Christ and the stories that we are paying attention to over these next few weeks, says this about his own calling. That Jesus was walking along, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. And what does Jesus say? Follow me. Or more directly, come behind me and be my disciple. And Jesus said to him, so Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew walks away from his job. Matthew walks away from his security. Matthew walks away from his paycheck. Matthew walks away from his Roman protection as a tax collector to follow behind Jesus Christ. And the life of following Jesus meant uprooting for Matthew. It meant a complete an utter change of not only what he does, but how he goes about living life, how he sees people, how he interacts with people, how he speaks to others, and how he reacts to certain situations. Why? Jesus called him to his gentleness and to his grace and to his kingdom. Now, I think this is incredibly important for us to hear because we don't want to hear that Jesus ask us that he that he's calling us into something that requires payment and we know what this is like don't we exactly what this is like let me turn to Matthew 8 let's back up a chapter because Matthew understood this passage of scripture or I don't think Matthew leaves the tax collector's booth and immediately follows Jesus. And as we paid attention to last week, immediately has a dinner with all of his friends and Jesus. He understood what happened in the previous chapter and the verses that came before him. Matthew 8, let's pick up in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8. Now Jesus saw the crowd around him. He instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake Then one of the teachers of the religious law said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied to him, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests. Son of man has no place even to lay his head. Now another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. Verse 2, Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. 
Okay. This is the passage of scripture that you tend to pass over or read through very quickly every year when you read through your Bible, right? This is one of those confusing, if you will, passages of scripture, one of those unsettling passages of scripture. It's startling to hear the demands to which Jesus is calling religious leaders and disciples of his in the, in the act of coming behind him. But it's also the act that Simon and Andrew, Matthew chapter 4, or Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, understood of what it meant to come behind Jesus. This startling demand of Jesus isn't cruel. Jesus isn't bringing up a, a high end, a high bar for us to, to hurdle and get over. He's not rejecting disciples of Jesus. He wants those that follow or come behind him to understand one thing. That following or coming behind him has a cost. That coming into Jesus is not a health and wealth gospel. Now, let me continue to step on our toes a little bit. The prosperity gospel that we so often hear or pay attention to through mainstream media or anything of that nature is nonsense and it is false. The prosperity gospel says that our financial and physical well-being are always tied to the will of God, which is nonsense. Jesus doesn't come in and call Simon and Andrew. He doesn't even call Matthew the tax collector and say, you know what? If you come with me, you're going to have a really great health plan and a, and a wonderful 401k. He calls disciples to abandon their life and their protection, and their security, and their paychecks at time to come behind him. And the prosperity gospel is a bunch of nonsense that wants us to believe that if we can set the standards for Jesus, then he will take care of us. If we can write the job description, he will take care of us. Jesus, I believe, but I believe that you're going to, you know, make this happen. Or, Jesus, I will only believe if, if I can have these certain kinds of things, if I can move up in these kinds of ways. If Jesus, if you can make me comfortable, man, would I be a big believer of yours. It's nonsense. Because the calling of Jesus is quite simple and it's quite stunning in and of itself. It is a calling to come behind him and to abandon our notions that we can have it all. To abandon security and the wealth and the comfort that so hinders God's people this very day. Jesus isn't hook, line, and sinkering you. He wants you to understand what it means to follow him and to come behind him. He doesn't get you in the door. It's not, this isn't some salesman that says, you know what? You're right. You know, some things are going to be a little different, but it's okay. Taking care of, don't worry. He wants you to know what it means to follow him. Come behind me, and you do not know what comes next. Jesus doesn't hide this. Because Jesus understands what it means to live the life of the kingdom of heaven. There are no guarantees except the kingdom itself, except God himself, except life itself. Jesus doesn't call his disciples 
take care of the things of this world while figuring out what it means to come behind him. He calls them to abandon the things of this world and then come follow him. That's what's happening in Matthew chapter 18 through 22. And Matthew understood this. Because what does the great sinner Matthew do when he hears Jesus come and say, come behind me? He leaves it all. Matthew probably had a really good house, a great job, and he had the Roman protection and he left it all. Why? Jesus changed everything. Because Matthew understood something about what it meant. Matthew understood that life called him into his presence. That Jesus quite literally is life. And there is no longer a reason to follow death, to follow ways of the world, which ultimately always lead to death. There's no longer a reason to get behind death. There is a reason now because of Jesus and Jesus alone to leave death behind. And that's what following is. Following demands, we leave death behind. Which is the two examples in Matthew chapter 8, 18 through 22. If you really think about it, the teacher of the law and the disciple who come to Jesus, they are captured by death. They haven't been willing to leave death behind. Whether it's taking care of certain things, or whether it's even burying his own father. Jesus isn't cruel. Jesus wants him to understand that if you want to follow me, you better be willing and ready to leave death behind. Because Jesus is life. He's everlasting, eternal life. Jesus is the center of all life. In this kingdom that he pronounces and ushers in is a kingdom of life, life-giving actions, life-centeredness, life-giving interactions, life words. Jesus is life. And to come behind Jesus means we're going to be people not held by death, but people of life. And that's where baptism comes in, isn't it? Baptism is an act of not being held hostage by death any longer. Because when you go into the water in baptism, you are dying to the demands of death and the ways of this world to live a new life in the kingdom of God. When you come out of that water, the Spirit of God is freely and abundantly accessible to you, and that's life. God left His Spirit. Jesus left the Spirit of God with us because life is what follows in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And in baptism, we are no longer held by death. We have life. We have the life-centeredness of Jesus Christ upon us. And the watery grave now is a place of grace and hope. It overwhelms us in the baptism of Jesus Christ. It is an act of life. We don't have to fear death. We get to dance with life. I want to end with one example that's actually 
the very next passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 8. It's a wonderful example. Coming off the heels of Matthew 8, 18 through 22, teacher of the law, disciple to come to Jesus. Jesus says, this is the Travis International. You ain't ready to follow yet. Here's what happens. Matthew 8, picking up in verse 23. Jesus got in the boat, because remember, he sent the disciples across the way already. Has this interaction with a couple of men. And he finally gets in the boat with his disciples. And they start to cross the lake. In verse 24, suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake, waves breaking in the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went, and they woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! Verse 26, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he, Jesus, got up, the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. Many things that happen in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27 continues. The disciples are trying to figure out exactly who Jesus is in this moment because he can control the storm. But the thing that really Jesus, I think, admonishes the disciples for is not that they're scared of waves and wind and the boat capsizing. That seems like a pretty natural place to be scared of for a moment, doesn't it? But when Jesus comes awake, he says, why are you afraid you have so little faith? What are the disciples holding on to is what I wonder. Sure, they're scared of the moment. We ought to be scared of certain moments in our life and in this world. There are things to be afraid of. But Jesus, I don't think, admonishes them for being afraid of the boat capsizing. He admonishes them because they are held by death. They're afraid because death is the end of them. Because death is what comes naturally and next. And Jesus admonishes their little faith for not holding on to life. Jesus is in the boat with them. The center of all life, all hope, all grace, the Lord himself, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the God, the one who is in the kingdom of life in heaven, is in the boat with him, and they have such little faith, they are holding on so tightly to death that they are afraid. They are held by death. They are not embracing life. And this happens. This happens to me. This happens to you. We forget Jesus in the boat. But he's asleep. Yeah, but he's in the boat. And life is in the boat with you. When you take on in the waters of baptism, when the Spirit of God comes upon you in the act of life through baptism, Jesus is in the boat with you. Jesus is there with you, the center of life. I said this. The center of all goodness and grace. He is there in the boat with you. And Jesus admonishes the disciples for their lack of faith because he knows he has called them to get behind them, which means he has called them into life. You, church, you are called into life. we got to stop forgetting this. 
We need to embrace this and hold on to this. We need to live this and accept this. We need to stop being demanded by death and being held in the grips of death. You are called into life. You, whatever your story is, whatever your background is, whatever baggage you like to carry along, whatever mistakes you have made in your past, you are called into life. And now you must make a choice. When Jesus pulls it into his disciples, whether it's Simon and Andrew, James and John, whether it's Matthew and Matthew chapter 9, the disciples have to make a choice. And a decision must be made for those of us who have been baptized into the waters of the of grave. Are we going to continue to allow death to hold on to us? Or are we going to be disciples who are called into life, who live into life? Are we going to be people? Matthew chapter 4, verse 20 who leave their nets at once and follow him. You're invited this morning, not into death, not into dead ends, not into great unrealistic expectations. You are invited. You are invited into the kingdom of life. If there's a need of any kind, I want to make myself available front this morning. If there's a need that I or this church can help with, pray for, surround you with. If you need to make the decision that life is where you would like to live and be, you want to come behind Jesus. This is a great place, a great church, a great family to come into life this very day. Let's stand together and let's sing.